Before we get started, I want to thank the Whiting Foundation, whose public engagement fellowship has made this season possible. And to Alison O'Halloran and Scott Evoy, whose ongoing patronage has made every season of Hi-Fi Nation possible. Stay tuned after the end credits for a sneak preview of our Slate bonus episode with Sarah Lusbader. From Slate. I think we all love stories that subject people to the power that they wield over others. Like, what if you audited all of the tax collectors or gave a surprise exam to every teacher in a school? I think my favorites are when cops get busted for illegal activity. The stories have it all. The betrayal of public trust, an unsympathetic villain, but also a sense of vindication that the justice system can take out its own trash. And this is important because I think deep down, we have this worry that being a cop makes you above the law. And that's a scary thing. My name is uh, Robert Bryan. I'm retired uh, captain from the New York City Police Department. Robert Bryan worked as a lieutenant for the NYPD Internal Affairs Bureau in Long Island City, Queens. When a police officer is charged with illegal activity in New York City, the charge is given a log number and then forwarded to a district internal affairs office. It's called a C-case. That's also the name of Brian's book, a memoir about his time in internal affairs. IEB had this sort of this computer system that if there were enough of the same type of allegations that had been made against someone, even if they were never substantiated, They'd say, there's going to be a self-initiated case on this because there's just so many cases against this person. This guy was the poster boy for this type of case. This officer, we'll call him Officer Potsy, was a bit of a hothead. He had a list of allegations, like pulling his gun on someone who cut him off on the road, drag racing up to 100 miles an hour on residential streets, and manhandling people in fights over parking spaces. So Robert Bryan ordered up what they call a lifestyle on Potsy. You want to see where this person goes and what this person does. Does he go to church? Does he sit home and never come out? Does he hang out in areas that are known drug locations? That's really developing a lifestyle, where he goes, what he does. Right. So it's essentially, it's surveillance. You're following the It's surveillance, yes. Officer Potsy turned out to be a bar hopper. He'd go out drinking, telling NYPD stories to bar patrons until the wee hours of the morning. And there was a pattern to all of his public outbursts. They all involved him getting angry while driving. So Brian and his team decided to set up a sting. We just needed some way to get this guy pissed, to put, not to piss him off, to put him in an environment that he could become pissed off. Okay, that's, what's the difference between that? Our guy was never going to go up to him and say, hey, I don't like your face. It was just going to be having a car parked where it would be difficult for him to move his car and see what he would do in that case. This was Brian's idea. They'd follow Potsy to a bar. One of the guys on the team would go into the bar and drink, watch Potsy, interact with him, keep an eye on him. Another guy would pretend to be a cab driver. They rented a cab because what would anger an NYC driver more than a cab? And they'd park the cab in such a way that it boxed Potsy in 
Then the officer, pretending to be a cab driver, would be standing at a payphone, looking really busy and unable to get off of the phone. Brian himself would be in an unmarked car, watching the whole thing from across the street. The setting was really good for us because right across the street from this pub was a restaurant under renovation, so there was a big container. His car was parked directly in front of the container, so there was no car going to move away back there, and we were able to get our cab right in in front of him. And as the night went on, every other car along the curb in front of the cab left. So the only vehicle on that block was that cab blocking him in. So if that wasn't going to be enough to tick him off, I don't know what would. So that's four in the morning now? Yeah, bar closing time. So, So he comes out. He comes out. He got in, turned on the engine, and he halfway gets out of the car. He's yelling, hey, this yours? This yours? And, you know, our guy's doing exactly the right thing. He's sort of waving him off with his hand. What we had told our guy on, on the payphone was that if he started coming towards you, we wanted we would tell him to run because we didn't want any type of a, of a physical thing there. But he got back in the car, he closed the door, and all of a sudden, the cab started moving. And there's smoke coming from everything. He had just gunned it and just started pushing the cab down the block. And it's in park, and it's, and since there was nothing in front, he pushed it a full block. Meanwhile, there's a, the bar was closing, so there was a crowd that was outside, and they're all cheering and they're yelling NYPD, and and he, he pushed it, and the, the the fender came off, and then he spun around and he came back. He made like a victory lap in front of the pub, and then took off into the night with the with with pieces of of the cab all over the place. And so you guys nailed him. Yeah, that, that, that was easy. We, I mean, it was something like that. There's no need to do anything right then. The, um, the next day, he was actually arrested by detectives. We transported him to the precinct in Nassau County for uh, criminal mischief. From Slate, this is Hi-Fi Nation, philosophy in story form. This season, crime and punishment. Recording from Vassar College, here's your host, Barry Lamb. On today's show, we're going to look at when we do and when we don't subject police officers to the same rules that they apply to us. Last week, we looked at police discretion and one officer's attempt to give us a test for proper and improper uses of discretion in a liberal democracy. This week, we're going to look at how much discretion police should have in the first place. Because if you're in charge of enforcing the rules, You're also in charge of when you can bend them in your own favor. One philosopher and former law enforcement officer has been thinking about this a lot, and he's concluded that he doesn't much like bending the rules at all. In fact, some of the hallmark tools of police investigations, stings, undercover operations, informant deals, he thinks they've gone too far. Hi, my name is Luke Hunt. I'm an associate professor of criminal justice at Radford University. Luke Hunt is another one of these philosophers I found whose work is based on his previous experiences in law enforcement. I wanted some kind of adventure. I wanted to do something exciting 
I settled upon this idea of FBI special agent. And I went to Quantico and I did my training. And the FBI, as my first field office, sent me to the Charlottesville, Virginia, what they call resident agency. There were five agents. We covered about 11 counties. So I did investigations of gangs, drugs, white collar crime, crimes against children. I was out on bank robberies. Hunt left the FBI after seven years. His last job was supervisory special agent working at the National Security Branch. He went on to get a PhD in political philosophy at the University of Virginia. When you look at all of the values of a liberal democracy that you want policing to advance, one of the most important has to be the rule of law. Governance by legal and moral principles as opposed to arbitrary decisions by government officials. If you think about governing by the rule of law, you can think about it compared to, say, vast discretion. Too much discretion can pervert law and can pervert policing. Where I think this is the most pressing issue is when you think about how police have this tremendous discretion to deviate from the law in an officially sanctioned way. So every day, the police have the ability to break all kinds of substantive laws as a way to promote their law enforcement role. I think when you look at how widespread that practice is, there's certainly an argument to be made that we're no longer governing by rule of law principles, but rather we're governing by this very, very extreme amount of discretion to deviate from rule of law principles. You spoke about it as though it's kind of obvious to all of us that they break the law all of the time in the context of policing, but it's not obvious to me. I would have thought that the thing that they did was deceive sometimes, but I would have thought that that stuff was legal. Like, tell me, give me, give me some examples of what you have in mind. In the FBI, this is called otherwise illegal activity. It's so common, it's almost comical. All you, you do is you fill out a form that your supervisor will sign, and that allows you or an informant to break actual laws, whether that be conspiring to do certain acts, whether that's selling drugs, selling some other sort of illegal contraband, you get permission to break federal and state laws. It was quite easy to get that permission in the FBI. And I think when you look at the local and state levels, it's even much easier. If your question is whether the police are above the law, the answer is that it's complicated. Most of the internal affairs investigations that Robert Bryan told me about, like with Potsy, concern police officers in their extracurricular activities, where they're subject to criminal law like any other citizen. On the job, they're subject to corruption investigations. Internal affairs regularly plants money and valuables around the city to see if officers on a call end up pocketing them. And for police on patrol, There's a rich history of civil rights litigation and a Fourth Amendment setting up legal constraints on their activity. In contrast, for investigations, sting and undercover operations are subject to almost no judicial review or oversight. Prosecutions of officers for illegal activity during these operations are almost non-existent. Decisions about how and whether to engage in these operations are made almost completely administratively at the discretion of police. 
and they give license to law enforcement to violate all manners of statutes that citizens aren't allowed to violate under any condition. There are many different concerns about the rule of law that Luke Hunt is expressing. One thing not to like about otherwise illegal activity is that, as citizens, our goals are always subservient to the law. While for the police, the law gets to be subservient to their goals. I'm sure a lot of us can make really good utilitarian arguments for why violating some laws are just better overall for us and society. It really is in the interest of a business owner and their community to hire and shelter undocumented immigrants. It really is in my best interest to drive 90 miles an hour to get home to my child late at night. But none of us are allowed to make those arguments to law enforcement, much less act on them without legal consequences. But the police are allowed to make these kinds of arguments for law enforcement goals. Yeah, they're doing otherwise illegal activity, but it advances this aim of theirs to stop even more illegal activity. Their actions, their goals, their people are exceptions to the rule of law. And having any exceptions highlights that not all people are equal under the law, a central tenet of a liberal democracy. A different concern is that discretion itself is incompatible with the rule of law. This concern isn't about whether discretion generally leads to good or bad things, or even that it's used selectively to break the laws themselves. The mere power to use discretion is something to be worried about. No person should have this kind of power in a liberal society when it can be avoided. Umpiring in sports is a good analogy here. You're supposed to be playing by the rules in sports, but there are also umpires and judges that enforce the rules, and there is more discretion in some sports than others. In tennis, the rule is that if a ball even so much as touches a line, it's in. Even though that's the rule, it used to be that judges and umpires had the final say on whether a ball was in or out. It was a rule enforced completely on discretionary calls. The calls determined the facts. That's not true anymore. We have instant replay technology that is to one-tenth of a millimeter accurate. So now the facts can overrule the judges. Line judges and umpires are as subject to the rules of tennis as the players. They judge the lines. They don't determine the facts about the lines. And this is better. No person has power over the rules, and the rules do the work across all tennis matches. Balls and strikes in baseball are a different story. At least at the time of this recording in 2020, a plate umpire has full discretion to call the balls and strikes. Sure, they can't be egregiously bad. If they make obviously bad calls long enough, they'll be fired for incompetence. But still, what they say goes. A ball is a ball if that's what they say it is. They can't be overruled, and if you argue long enough with them, they have the discretion to kick you out of the game. Having a problem with vast discretion as being inherently incompatible with the rule of law is like having a problem with baseball umpiring and wanting it to be more like calling lines in tennis. 
You don't want anywhere for the police to determine what is just and unjust breaking of law. You want the law to be able to overrule police. But it can't be all bad. There are so many crimes that, without being caught in the act, it would just be impossible to prove. And so a certain class of criminals would be de facto immune from prosecution. Why isn't that contrary to the rule of law also? I put out a Google alert months and months ago on sting operations just to see what mostly comes in. And what mostly comes in is child pornography and and child molestation kind of stuff. So when I imagine cases like that, I'm imagining like, good, you know, like that's exactly what I want sting operations to be. That's not the kind of thing that you have a problem with, or do you? If you're going to break the law to enforce it in these sting operations, I think it should be limited to certain cases. One constraint would be a situation in which there's some sort of emergency scenario in which life is at risk or some sort of uh, serious bodily injury. And and I think in, in many of the cases where you're talking about crimes against children, that would certainly qualify. The concern I have is you have the police getting very creative, and I've been involved in situations like this. You can construct these very elaborate scenarios to ensnare people, and you get to a certain point where you think, wait a minute, should this be the focus of our efforts and our resources? Should we be putting informants and undercover operations in a situation such as this when there's really no risk on the line in terms of life or bodily injury? Why are we trying to buy and sell drugs on the street to ensnare kids in that way when that is not a priority in terms of protecting some sort of national security interest, protecting some sort of life? I'm not sure how to think about the issue. Is the problem that police shouldn't have discretion to engage in otherwise illegal activity? Or that they should, but there should be appropriate tests on legitimate and illegitimate uses of it, like we talked about last week? It's one of these ongoing problems about whether you want to stick with principles or with results. Luke Hunt likes the principles. Police don't deserve exceptions the rest of us don't have. There's a principle, and you don't violate it unless there's an extreme circumstance. But I like results. It's good when undercover agents bribe a corrupt official or a crooked cop and then bust them for it. But bad when they bust kids for buying joints. Forget about the principle. Let's just figure out good priorities and bad priorities and pursue only the good ones. But there are deeper concerns about granting so much discretion in police procedures. Having the ability to bring charges or dismiss them at will. Having the ability to permit one crime while enforcing others. Gives the police enormous powers to bargain and threaten a civilian into submitting to their bidding. Mix that power in with a few frightened kids and you have an entire underground system of crime and punishment. Hi-Fi Nation will return after these messages. Andy Cullison, you're the director of the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. You've got a new podcast out now, right? Yes, I'm the host of Getting Ethics to Work, a show about ethical issues in the workplace. You actually think that workplace problems generally are problems about values, right? I do. In fact, I'd hazard a guess that almost all of them are conflicts about values. 
Most people's workplaces have taken a dramatic change in the last month. What's a moral issue that people are facing as they take their work home and into cyberspace? Well, we actually had a listener email us an issue that she was having with her company's leadership. They wouldn't let them take office equipment home, and they wanted to implement stringent rules about how work could be conducted. And she wondered, is this something that they really have a right to do? And, you know, we're seeing a lot of issues that amidst this crisis might not seem to involve ethical issues, but in fact, they do. Subscribe to Getting Ethics to Work wherever you get your podcasts and let them show you how to get ethics to work for you. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. The term queen for a day refers to a proffer agreement. It's when you get someone on a crime, but agree to go easy on them if they cooperate and help you get someone else. When you have the blessing from an assistant district attorney that may potentially be prosecuting a a case like this, you're able to go swoop up these individuals off the street, tell them, look, we know what's going on. You're willing to testify as to what actually happened here. You're queen for a day. You're off scot-free. If not, you're going to be pulled into this with as much culpability as him. Bob Bryan used these agreements a couple of times in a case he investigated for internal affairs in the late 90s. The police officer was off duty and had been rear-ended at a red light by this elderly gentleman, and it had been really nothing but a fender bender. This officer, who we'll call Noonan, filed a series of suspicious claims with the auto insurance company. The company, seeing that Noonan was a cop, forwarded all the claims to internal affairs. This officer had made claims that he had so many things in his car, a T-set from Japan, a priceless T-set. A 27-inch color TV and VCR, a $900 Superman wristwatch he was apparently wearing during the accident. He even had a leg of lamb listed that he wanted to be paid for. He charged the insurance company for the installation of air conditioning in his home, on the grounds that he couldn't move the window units in and out because of his injuries. But it was two of the priciest claims that caught Brian's eye. He needed to pay a home health aide to give him sponge baths several times a week. And then he also had broken up with his fiancée. Because of this accident, he could no longer perform sexually. Newton was charging the insurance company $1 million for the breakup of the relationship. The claim included a signed three-page affidavit from the ex-girlfriend detailing their sex life before and after the accident. It wasn't possible for Brian to get Noonan's medical files to investigate the fraud, but he thought he could look into the sponge baths and the ex-girlfriend. It turned out that he had worked in Queen Central Booking, which is uh, every borough has their own area where when arrests are brought from the precinct, they're brought into a central location within the borough. And the home health aide that gave him the sponge baths and his fiancée who broke up with him 
Both turned out to be civilian police administrative aides who worked with him. One at a time on different days, we got these two young ladies coming home. And Brian offered both of them a queen for a day. Both women cooperated right away. The one of them had some type of a certificate that she had been a home health aide. I never even went to his house, she said. I just, oh, she told me, give me some money if I said that I said I would. And the same thing with the other one was in no relationship with him. He told me that I'd get some money if I just said that I used to have a relationship and that it broke up. It was amazing how they didn't realize that there was any problem with this. The crime technically took place in Nassau County on Long Island and not New York City. So Brian got all of the signed confessions and the rest of the evidence he had about Noonan's insurance fraud and took them to the Nassau County DA's office to press criminal charges. Nassau County just looked at it and chose not to prosecute. So once the criminal aspect is gone, then department charges are filed. And this this, uh, officer ended up getting fired. The Noonan case is another instance of justice done with a proper use of discretion. It doesn't seem like anything could be wrong about the use of queen-for-a-day agreements in criminal investigations. After all, the alternative would be to prosecute everyone who committed a crime. You could just interrogate your way to a confession and then press charges for fraud on everyone. Being a stickler for the rule of law doesn't seem to lead to a more just outcome in this case. And yet, the underlying principle allowing queen-for-a-day agreements, the discretionary use of leniency in exchange for cooperation, underlies one of the most problematic violations of the rule of law in covert police procedures. I think that the topic of informants, that's the one area that, that sort of alarmed me the most when I was in the FBI. Uh, my name is Nick Tiber. You know, I'm a Midwesterner. I grew up in Waverly, Iowa. You know, l- life was great in Waverly. I had a great family, youngest of seven. Spent my youth, my summer days, you know, playing on the golf course, going to the pool. Took school seriously, top top 10 in, in the class, you know, and, and graduate with honors too. It was kind of a, a fateful time. Fourth of July celebrations were commonly a, a time when high schoolers you know, would uh, partake in, in various activities, usually relating to, uh, you know, alcohol consumption. That was the, uh, the norm in, in rural Iowa at that time. I was 17 years old. This was, you know, just part of uh, high school life. The actual event happened on, uh, on July 3rd. We were at a house party at that time. And uh, in leaving the house party with another person, you know, I was obviously intoxicated and got into an accident. I was driving, yes. Yep. I was driving and probably didn't get more than uh, a half a mile away from the, from the house and, and turned blindly into a tree. The license plate was okay, but the car was totaled. It was me and, and a female. At that time, seatbelts weren't worn all too frequently. So, yes, I was thrown into the steering wheel and she was thrown into the dash, sadly. You know, I was uh, taken away in ambulance. 
And at that point, you know, I have, I have no recollection of that. You must have had a concussion at least, right? I probably did. I, I can remember my head was wrapped. Uh, my, my knee was wrapped. I don't recall actually going home. I call being home, waking up to my alarm clock to go into work the next day. And I, I had opening responsibility for the sandwich shop. And I think I probably rode my bike there because the car was totaled, of course. I believe that I was served probably the next day with the infraction, you know, with notice to appear in court because it was a OWI or operating while under the influence uh, infraction. So there was a, a, a meeting and I can recall it being in the, the basement of the old police station. You walk down the stairs, uh, the door gets shut. It was probably a witness room of some kind. You know, it was cold, the chair was hard and my hands were sweaty and I was probably shaking, teeth were chattering. You know, it's just, I don't even remember if my attorney was present. So who's actually there? One of the, the local police officers, well, I'll say Officer G, okay, as well as, you know, another agent of some kind. I don't know if that was a DEA agent. I don't know if that was the county attorney. We have informants. Some people want to work for law enforcement because they want to be a patriot. Some people think it's cool because they're like a spy in the movies. What I see that's most troubling to me is a very common scenario in which the police compel an informant to do certain operational acts because they have a tremendous amount of power and leverage over the person. Now, the classic example of that would be when police have evidence that a person has committed some kind of crime and they say, hey, look, we're willing to consider giving you a break if you'll do this thing for us. At least as it was presented to me, you know, you're, you're faced with uh, jail time, you're, you're faced with a serious fine, or you can work toward a deferred sentence where, you know, it never appears on your record, which was, uh, you know, very important to me. Again, it's, uh, it's an honor thing, uh, but you have to do these, these activities, perform these, these tasks. In many cases, you might say, that's just a free bargain. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's a very libertarian approach. But in my view, this is far from a free bargain. This is a situation which would rise to what you would call in contract law an unconscionable contract. I was 17 years old. I was just uh, in a pretty major accident. I'm going to college. You know, th this was a pretty stressful time. Uh, and, and you wanted to do, you know, maybe take the path of least resistance. You know, from what I recall, it was it was a split second decision where, you know, it was either a, you're going to go this way or, or, or that way uh, through the justice system. When we think about a valid consent, morally binding consent in philosophy and, and certainly in law, we think, well, you need to have a, a real choice in the matter. And in many of these cases with informant, here's what the choice looks like. You can either engage in this very risky, very dangerous operation on our behalf, which, to be honest, could result in your death or serious injury, or you can spend a long time in prison. That's basically the choice. So that's one concern procedurally. The other concern is just the lack of knowledge. You have someone who is untrained in many cases, and you're asking this person to engage in a dangerous act where there are all kinds of risks that they could have no awareness of. On the other hand, the police have this awareness. They have this knowledge. Why? Because they've been trained that way. They know what it's like to go in an undercover operation. They know that things can go, go wrong. 
I, I had never been in this kind of trouble before. I probably deserved it. And bear in mind, this is Waverly, Iowa. Uh, so it's 10,000 people. You know, at that time in 1995, I can't say that drugs or, you know, uh, methamphetamine, which is a common rural drug today, uh, you know, wasn't even that prevalent. In, in Waverly, kids just aren't exposed to this. We'll return to the rest of Hi-Fi Nation after these messages. The term confidential informant is a real misnomer for the pervasive practice of recruiting young men and women, often underage, to engage in undercover operations on behalf of the police in the drug war. Confidential informant sounds like police are recruiting foot soldiers in the drug trade who then provide information or testimony to bust someone. But that's not what it is at all. In all of the prominent cases that end up making the newspapers, they're high school or college kids who are busted on something, usually drug possession, and then who are threatened with long sentences unless they use their youth as a cover to infiltrate some kind of dealing ring known to the police. And if you think about it, that makes sense. Law enforcement officers are older. A 17-year-old boy or girl doesn't look like a narc. And it happens with law enforcement at all levels, from school police to local police and federal agents. In Nick Tiber's case, there wasn't even a drug dealing ring. The police wanted to target a local stoner. He was a veteran, you know, the, the most peaceful, uh, calm person. He was known as being a, a, you know, a marijuana user. I don't even know if there were other drugs involved, and, but also very friendly in the community and probably you know, shared this with other people that were, uh, you know, interested in, you know, partaking. Very open-minded, I guess, is the best way to uh, describe the individual. But how much did you know him at the time? I only knew him by association of my older brother. He was probably 20 years my senior. I had maybe one or two interactions, but it was quite known that, you know, this was his house. It was kind of a haven for intellectual thought, okay, where, where people would maybe sit in a circle and talk about Thoreau, or I think Jack Kerouac was kind of the in vogue, uh, at least his books on the road. I can remember that. Just probably one of the smartest people in the community, obviously a philosopher. In this cold room with those Officer G and whoever it was, the county attorney, attorney. you were tasked with, in the next two months, to provide actionable evidence? Essentially, it had to be done in two months because I was going to college in Iowa City two hours away. And, you know, they, they didn't have the plan or anything, uh, uh, you know, of that nature. I had to set it up. I had to go collect information. Oh, wow. Gosh. Wait, wait. So they didn't have an operation in mind. They just said, it, it's like giving you police work. It was to find and discover actionable evidence. Okay. And, and I do recall putting on a wire, I believe, and creating a superficial meeting through uh, really acquaintances that knew this person, none of which could know, of course, what I was trying to do. You know, going in and I, I put all those people in that situation. That's when it became just an awful violation of, of trust. Why are we targeting this, this peaceful person that's never harmed anyone in their lives, as far as I could tell? This was the boogeyman, okay, in the minds of, of law enforcement. And if we, if we can't get the big, you know, criminal enterprise, uh, by God, we're, we're going to go after uh, anybody that we can so that we can, you know, get a score. Luckily for Nick Tiber, the police's target in Waverly, Iowa, was not a danger to anyone. That doesn't make it better. When the target is not a threat, why are you forcing some kid to conduct covert operations on your behalf? 
And why would you need to do that if the target is a threat? There have been a series of botched informant operations in the last 10 years that follow the pattern of Nick Tiber's story, only with far worse results. Rachel Hoffman, in Tallahassee, Florida in 2008, was arrested on marijuana and ecstasy possession and threatened with very serious charges. In exchange for leniency, she agreed on doing a $13,000 drug and gun deal in a sting operation set up by the police. The police lost track of her, and she was shot in the head by the dealers. Andrew Sadek in North Dakota had a similar story. He was threatened with 40 years. So instead, he started buying drugs for the police at North Dakota State College of Science. Andrew disappeared and was found in a river with a gunshot wound to the head and a backpack filled with rocks. Andrew's parents think he was murdered. The police say it was a suicide, Andrew's way of trying to get out of his informant deal. His parents are still fighting the police in lawsuits to this day. I think if you look at the sort of harm, the risks that you're subjecting a person to in this situation, it really amounts to what you might describe as a form of legal punishment. Because primarily, at the end of the day, it's a way for the informant to work off their misdeed, their wrongdoing. My problem is that we get there through this vast discretion, which I think deviates from basic rule of law governance. And it's also this kind of punishment that's really outside the normal judicial process. Right, because the idea is that if we're going to think of the legal system as determining culpability, right, what we've put in place is something like presumption of innocence, trial, right. evidence, like sentencing where there's like, you know, um, people testifying as to possible date. What you're saying is that the police in their discretion is bypassing that entire system. Yeah, and, and an, another way to put it, and maybe a little bit unusual way to put it, I, I agree with all everything you said. Also, people um, have a right to legitimate punishment. They have a right to punishment. But in a case like the use of an informant, you're sort of working off your crime, your punishment, in this sort of off-the-books way to sort of mitigate your wrongdoing, your right to being punished in a legitimate way is sort of being denigrated. In the case of informants, I don't think Hunt's rule of law concerns are about the police breaking the laws at all. In fact, it's not about the law. It's about the principles underlying why we want laws in the first place. We don't like it when being a cop or being rich, or being white, gives you a special path through the criminal laws. The moral principle underlying this is that we're a society of moral equals. When law enforcement uses leverage over an informant to offer them alternative paths through the justice system, it places individuals in different moral positions, depending on their usefulness to the police. We also don't like it when the state uses leverage it uniquely has to force you to do something in their interest, but contrary to yours. The underlying moral principle here is just Kant's categorical imperative. You don't treat people as mere means. What Luke Hunt calls the right to legitimate punishment just follows from these moral principles. Insofar as the state is going to subject you to punishment, 
it has to do it on the assumption of the moral equality of its citizens, and in a way that doesn't treat you as a mere means. Yeah, in in the next two months, uh, you know, despite the the tremendous pressure, I, I actually made an agreement with myself, I'm not going to do this. Okay, and so at that point, it became a waiting game. At what point do I get charged? Because there was threats, you know, along the way. They uh, told me, okay, if you can't provide the evidence against this person, go after anyone you know. Okay, so they knew they already had me. I wanted to get out of Waverly. That was my goal without providing uh, any harm or any more shame to my, uh, my family. Of course, I went to Iowa City as early as I possibly could. I wanted to get away from this with the uh, order that, okay, when you're in Iowa City, provide evidence. So, Oh, uh, wait, you're kidding. No, no, this, this followed me. They, they have you. They have you. And there's, there's no out clause. Wait, wait, wait. So, so what started as an individual that they wanted to target so that you could wear a wire, go into this guy's house and see if he'd sell you drugs or something, turned into wherever you're going, find actionable evidence about drugs generally? Yes. Yep. Yep. So I was just an extension of the police force at that time with the um, duty to uh, provide evidence or else. In his first year in college in Iowa City, with his informant deal hanging over him, Nick withdrew from friends, started drinking. His grades dropped. He got into more trouble with the law, public intoxication, minor in possession of alcohol, possession of a fake ID. Eventually, he was called into the ombudsman's office and threatened to be kicked out of school. So Nick made a decision. He would turn himself in, Take the full sentence he was threatened with in the first place. Take the mark on his record. The sentence turned out to be a weekend in jail and about $5,000 in fines. And at that point, it was done. It was probably the most relief I've had in my life because the weight of the criminal justice system was off my shoulders. I uh, paid my fine to society and, you know, now it rests on my my record for the rest of my life. But, you know, that's something that I, I own. Have you encountered the people involved in all of this, you know, since it all went down and it was over? I have. Uh, you know, I've encountered my attorney, the judge, and I don't fault anyone in this situation. You know, I, I knew the daughter of Officer G. It's a small town and, you know, it's just something that I'll never speak of to them. I don't think of them any less, you know, they're all honorable people. They were just tasked with being part of a dishonorable uh, system. Nick Tiber is a city councilman in Cedar Falls, Iowa. You can find him at nicktiber.com. Luke Hunt is now assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Alabama. His book is The Retrieval of Liberalism in Policing. You can find a link to both on our website. Let me end with one last story from Internal Affairs, which brings our two threads together. I just want to give a warning here. This case involves a graphic description of a sexual crime and is not appropriate for young children and may be upsetting to others. If you want to skip it, you could end the show right here. There was a pretty egregious case of an Internal Affairs office in Fort Wayne, Indiana, using an informant to try and bust another cop. 
The Fort Wayne police had busted a woman named Amy for a cocaine offense. They threatened her with 40 years in prison, or she could do an operation with them. They wanted to set up a sting on a cop named Nathan. Amy was to offer Nathan oral sex in exchange for money, and then they would bust Nathan for soliciting a prostitute. Internal Affairs instructed Amy to perform the oral sex on Nathan, and they gave her a napkin to spit into to preserve the evidence. Amy did as she was asked, and Internal Affairs arrested Nathan on the charges. Amy was then so disgusted by her actions that she didn't cooperate any further. Both she and Nathan sued the police department for civil rights violations and lost. It's one of those few cases where someone asked the courts to draw a line that police shouldn't be able to cross in undercover, sting, and informant operations. The courts decided that there is nothing in the Constitution that draws the line at making a woman perform oral sex in a sting operation in exchange for leniency. They wrote that all informants agree to risky activity in exchange for leniency. This is just another such activity. If they don't like it, they can leave the offer. So I decided to ask Robert Bryan, who worked in internal affairs all those years ago, what he thought of the case. Way too far with that. <laughs> I would have never done that. I would have never yeah. said something up like that. No. The interesting thing about this kind of case is that the courts actually found in favor of the police department. So the judgment that they went too far is actually a professional judgment of yours. It's not actually like a legal judgment because it turns out legally the courts actually thought it was okay. Now, that professional sense of ethics that, that you have that it's too far, What do you? how would you articulate why that's too far in this case to somebody who's like, say, going into IAB or something like that? See, I, I would never have even brought that like to my commanding officer saying, hey, Captain, here's an idea I have. Let's let's see if we can get our informant to perform oral sex and store the evidence. I would never even have gone, think of going to someone with an idea like that. So that's so clearly over the yes. line to you. Okay. <laughs> What's fascinating to me is just what prevents a police force, a particular unit, IAB unit, from crossing the line versus not when the law, it seems like, in, from this ruling, because rulings have precedence, say that you can go f- about that far, right? I just, I'm, I'm curious about what restrains the, the exercise of power like that. I, I think a lot of it has to do with a, a person's own, um, you know, ethical and moral line, where there are things that you just know are right and there are things you know are wrong and there are certain things you don't need some type of a law book to tell you that that's just not that's just not a a good thing to do Robert Bryan retired NYPD police officer his book is Sea Case The Unlikely Journey from Transit Cop to Internal Affairs Bureau Commander you can find a link to it on our website Hi-Fi Nation is written, produced, and edited by Barry Lamb, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Vassar College. Editorial Director for Slate Podcasts is Gabriel Roth. Senior Managing Producer for Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. Operations Manager for Slate Podcasts is Asha Saluja. Editor for Slate Plus is me, Chow Tu. 
Our new executive producer for Slate Podcasts is Alicia Montgomery. Special thanks to Carrie Figdor, Scott Evoy, Aris Bat, Eileen Chow, Liz Weeks, Kermit Cole, and Jonathan Guaret, whose patronage have made this episode and this season possible. Production assistance this season provided by Noah Mendoza Goop. Visit hifination.org for complete show notes, soundtrack, and reading list for every episode. That's hiphination.org. Follow Hi-Fi Nation on Facebook and Twitter and at the website for updates on stories and ideas. Here's a preview of the Slate Plus content for this week's episode, The Informant. I and Sarah Lusbader sit down and discuss long form some of the issues from this episode. Your mandate as a public defender is to zealously defend your client and to pursue your client's interests. So if the client is interested in cooperating for whatever reason, that's your interest too. Unless you think it's just so foolhardy that that you have to try to talk them out of it. And it's totally possible in any given case that that is actually the reasonable thing to do because the sentence that they're looking at is so unreasonable. Absolutely. I think plenty of people who are public defenders often wish that their clients had more to offer the government because it's it's sometimes a better deal, even though it's a terrible deal and a huge gamble. In many cases, that's just how messed up our punishment system is, that that in fact, these kinds of awful deals could actually be the better option. To get this and all bonus content, including an ad-free feed of this and every other Slate podcast, just sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash hi-fi plus or click the link in the show notes.